Well, today's message I've entitled, What Motivates Our Thankfulness? And so we're going to take a little time from this story, from God's Word that we just saw portrayed for us, to look a little bit at the example of Paul and what motivated his thankfulness in this circumstance as well as throughout his life and what we can learn from it as well. Would you bow with me and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and that every story within it is for our good. It conveys your truth and that we can learn from it. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning we would not only learn but that by your Holy Spirit we would receive and, and apply with your power what you would have for us, Lord, that we could truly live out this gratitude with a motivation that is not an earthly motivation, not one that is only uh, to human understanding, but that it would be a heavenly motivation, one that is rooted in the throne, throne room of heaven and that it would come directly from you. And so I pray that you would speak through this word, through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's a story told of a Sunday school teacher. She was teaching a grade 8 class of students, and the lesson, of course, was on thankfulness, a common theme in many Sunday school lessons. And the teacher closed the lesson on thankfulness by asking the students to do a very practical thing, which I think was the exact thing that Barry was referring to, where she challenged the class that everyone had to list at least one, if not more, things that they were thankful for. And so they began to go around the circle, and most gave typical one-word answers. Things like, friends, thanks for my comfy bed, thanks for good food, so on and so forth. Then it came to one boy who replied, Well, I'm thankful that I got sick on Friday. And while this brought about predictable snickers and laughter from the rest of the, the class who thought he was just pulling everyone's legs, and then at the close of the class, the Sunday school teacher had finished the circle and let that comment slide. But at the end, she asked the boy, And what made you so thankful that you were sick on Friday? To which the boy replied with a wide grin, because I got to miss school. Now, I promise you it wasn't my son, although that would be something that he would probably say as well. Now, it's funny what can motivate our thankfulness. He was motivated by being thankful that he got to miss school. Well, what motivates our thankfulness? Another way I'll put this is, what is our philosophy of thankfulness? Now, that might sound a little bit lofty to use a term like philosophy of thankfulness. But you see, philosophy simply means what is our view towards it? What is our, our, our way of thinking about it that we operate in terms of what causes us to be thankful? Another way of putting it is what activates our response of gratitude? What makes you say thank you? Now, for most of us, it's something, it's a polite term we use that we've been trained to say. No matter what, you say thank you, right? So, one of our great Manitoban traits is that uh, when, do you do this at the grocery store or am I the only one? The, the clerk, who I've just handed my money to, to buy products, says to me, thank you. And I don't reply with, you're welcome. I reply with, thank you. <laughs> don't, do you guys do that too? Am I the only one? 
I think we all do that. We, we reply thanks with thanks, right? And, and for the most part, it's not because we're really so thankful. We're just being polite. And for some reason, we here in Manitoba have, have uh, coined this thing where instead of saying you're welcome, we say thank you to thank you. But whatever it might be, beyond simply being polite, what causes us to be truly thankful? How do we evaluate something that's worthy of us giving thanks for it? Well, I would suggest that for the vast majority of people, our philosophy of thankfulness stems from our most basic wiring that goes something like this. When things are good, I'm thankful. And when things are bad, I'm not. Right? It's a very simple equation. When things are good, I'm thankful. When things are not, I'm not. And so this is our most simplistic philosophy of thankfulness. It's so simple that even a two-year-old can get it. And their thankfulness, or lack thereof, can easily be understood by either their their super cute smiles and giggles when they're thankful, or by, you know, ear-ringing, spine-tingling shrieks of anger when they're not so thankful. And some of you might be in that category where you have some two-year-olds in your lives, whether children or grandchildren. Now, We all get this because we were all two years old at one time, no matter how old we are. We remember what it's like to be a child, to have that simple scale. When things are good, I'm thankful. When things are bad, I'm not. However, as we grow up and we supposedly mature, we're supposed to grow beyond that. However, I think we just get a little bit more good at hiding it, let's say. Because our fundamental philosophy remains mostly the same. Practical examples for us to consider. The farmer is thankful when the rains come at the right time, and they're not thankful when the hail comes at the wrong time. Which also begs the question, is there ever a right time for hail? Is there, is there ever? Here's another example. The employee is thankful when their good work is rewarded with a pay raise. Yes, who doesn't love a pay raise? I'm thankful, I got it. But they're not so thankful when they get a pay cut or a demotion. The parent is thankful when the doctor gives their child a clean bill of health. And they're not thankful when their child receives a diagnosis of a serious illness. A student is thankful when their friend sticks up for them on the playground. And they're not thankful when that friend abandons them or teases them. Now, whether we realize it or not, this simple good-bad scale is what almost always determines the degree to which we are thankful. And when this happens, we carry over this simple evaluation tool into our relationship with God as well. And so our philosophy of thankfulness now becomes our theology of thankfulness. Now again, the term theology maybe is a little bit daunting, but it simply means our study or knowledge of God. So it's our approach to God, is our theology. And so our philosophy of thankfulness on a basic scale, things are good, we're happy or thankful. When things are bad, we're not. We now apply that to God. And so it goes something like this. When God blesses us with something, he's answered a prayer, we're thankful. But when God doesn't answer the prayer we want, or perhaps the answer is even no, then we're not thankful to him. And so this shapes our view of God. However, if we view God in this way, and if this is how we approach our gratitude towards him, then it's like we're putting the cart before the horse. 
and we're wondering why things aren't working properly. And so very often, without thought or consideration, our theology of thankfulness is based on this simple, good-bad scale that we use as two-year-olds. So, for instance, when God's presence feels near, we are thankful. Now, let me just put this into a setting for you. There's moments we have with God. Maybe you can remember back to a time at Bible camp where God's spirit was just so tangible and real and in the worship and you just felt his presence and, and he stirred in your heart and his presence was so real. It's like you could reach out and just touch him. We're thankful for that and we should be. But then there's other times in life where God seems distant, where it feels like we're in this dry wasteland and God is a long ways away from us and we know he's still there but we just don't feel it and so when that happens then the natural response is we're not thankful the same thing i could go through many other examples when god blesses us with with prosperity with a good crop with a good uh, a good year we're thankful but when we're having a hard time we're struggling to pay the bills then we're not we see god's visible signs that he's working in lives, people are coming to faith in Christ. Those are things we're thankful for. But when it seems like we're, we're teaching our kids or we're preaching the gospel and it's just there's no response, and we wonder, uh, what's going on? Why isn't the gospel taking root in people's lives? And, we, and, and our gratitude, it, it suffers as a result. When someone encourages us for our service to God, and they give us a pat on the back and say, what you did there, I saw that, that really matters. And they encourage us, and we feel great about that. We're thankful. But then on the flip side, when someone complains about your service, or worse yet, just straight up insults you for being a Christian, well, that's not something we're thankful for at all. And now this morning, we're going to see from our example that we're going to look at in the book of Acts, a biblically-based theology of thankfulness, what motivates our thankfulness, that is not contingent on our circumstances. And if we can embrace this the way that the Apostle Paul did, it is truly transformative. It flips our lives and how we think right upside down. Acts 16, verses 22 to 24 is where we'll begin. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. Acts 16 and verse 22. Now we're picking up right in the middle of a story. It's a narrative that's taking place. Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey, and they, they've been traveling all over the place, preaching the gospel, establishing churches. And so here they are in the midst of one of these journeys, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, if we were to simply use the good-bad scale that I've laid out for us, how thankful do you think Paul and Silas would be in this circumstance? How, how thankful do you think they would be? They've been arrested, then severely flogged, which... The point of severely flogged versus moderately flogged matters because let me just say that severely flogged, when we're talking about Roman times, is, is you know, the same flog that they would have used on Jesus back. You know, it's, it's a leather thongs with, with 
things uh, embedded at the end, sometimes jagged bits of glass, beads that just rip open a back. That's what they're designed to do. So they have been severely flogged. Their back is in tatters. They are shredded. They are bleeding. Then on top of that, they're thrown not just into prison, but into the inner cell, meaning the dungeon, the very, the, the very most secure place at the center of a prison. Then on top of that, they're fastened in stocks, rough wooden stocks is what their feet are through in their battered and bleeding bodies. And so we put this into context. Years AD 52, Paul's on his second missionary journey with Silas. Acts 16 verse 12 tells us that their travels took them to Philippi, which was a Roman colony and one of the leading cities of Macedonia. It's located in modern-day Greece. Now, on the Sabbath, Paul and Luke, who is the author of this book, as well as Silas, they were walking along the river outside of the city gates. They were minding their own business, simply looking for a peaceful place for prayer. As they're going along, there's a female slave who is demon-possessed. And this demon-possessed slave is being exploited by her masters to earn money for them as a fortune teller. So she would meet people through however this worked with the, the demon. There was enough power and deception at work that, that it seemed that this was compelling, that she could tell people's fortunes, and they were making money off of her in doing this. However, she is walking around, following Paul and his group, yelling out, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And so this was going on not just once, but repeatedly. This girl was following them around, calling this out. It's actually gone on for a few days, Luke records. And so finally, Paul's had enough. He obviously, through the Holy Spirit, has been, had revealed to him that this girl is in fact possessed by a demon. And so she, he turns around and he commands this demon. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And just like that, the Spirit left the girl. And the side effect of this deliverance was that this slave girl, who's been set free from bondage to this unclean spirit, this, this demon, she could no longer tell fortunes. And this resulted in costing her employers a source of income. They couldn't make money off of her anymore. And so we know that nothing angers a greedy man more than costing him money. And so they're infuriated. They're ripping mad. And it's all aimed at Paul because, well, he's the source of their trouble. He's the one who cast the demon out of the girl. And so they begin to incite the people. They stir them up. They whip up a kangaroo court complete with trumped-up charges. And they have Paul and Silas publicly shamed, stripped naked, severely flogged, and then imprisoned in a dungeon, feet in stockades. Now I realize that Paul, if you know anything about him, he was flogged and imprisoned not just once. It wasn't just a one-time thing for him. This was, this was a Monday for Paul. <laughs> this was something that happened on the regular. If, if you've gone through the book of Acts and, and looked through the writings of Paul, you know that he was no stranger to prison cells and to dungeons. However, even though we might just kind of write it off as just a Monday for Paul because we're used to his story... If we try to put ourselves in his shoes, I think it has a little bit more impact. I recently read from a devotional entitled 21 Days to Beat Depression. 
they described Paul's situation in these words. Set down in the belly of the earth, an ancient prison was a place that reeked of urine and vomit. Prisoners received only one meal per day of moldy bread accompanied by dirty water. When a guard brought food, he kicked the prisoner in a place that would bring excruciating pain. Roman prisoners sat in their own excrement day after day. No bathrooms were provided. Varmints and insects continually crawled over the prisoner's chained body, not to mention biting at their raw and festering wounds from the flogging. It goes on, but I'll just stop right there. Now, None of us have been in a circumstance anywhere close to this, what we've just had described for us. But I want you nonetheless to do your best to imagine putting yourself in their situation. That it's you who had the severe flogging. That it's you who had the kangaroo court. That it's you whose feet are now in a rough wooden stockade and cold metal shackles are around your hands. How would you be feeling? Would you be feeling grateful? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, don't, I, I wouldn't be. Would you be feeling happy? Yeah, th these are silly questions, right? No, this would be the most perfect opportunity to grumble and complain and throw a pity party. And there's nothing quite like a good pity party, especially when it's warranted, right? We all love doing it from time to time, don't we? And we wouldn't blame Paul and Silas one bit if they had done so. After all, they had good reason to grumble. They had good reason to feel sorry for themselves. After all, here they were serving God, doing his work. They had delivered a girl from demonic bondage, something that is incredible all by itself. And what do they get for doing God's work? A whipping, a beating imprisonment, and stockades. If anyone could say, God, what, what is this? Why is this happening to me? Why haven't you protected me from this? It was them. But is that how they responded? Well, let's continue. Verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were... Don't miss this. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. We read it, we're familiar with it, we carry on. Yeah, yeah, that's what they did. But stop, put yourself in that situation again. It's you in those stockades. What would it take for you in that situation, back ripped open, sitting in your own filth and excrement, not knowing if you're ever going to get out of this situation? to pray and sing praises to God. What would it take in your heart to be able to do that? In a place that had only known the curses of the condemned and the cries of despair, this sound of singing was probably something that those dungeon walls had never heard before. Voices raised in hymns of praise to God and it was so strange, it was so odd, so out of place, that the other prisoners were listening. What is this sound in this place of death? The sound of singing. Completely out of place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what song they were singing. 
Luke doesn't tell us the quality of Paul or Silas's singing voices either. For all we know, they could have been horribly out of tune. We don't know. But even so, remember, when it comes to singing praises to God, it's not the quality of our voices that determines the quality of our worship. In fact, someone with a very beautiful voice could not be worshiping at all because all they're doing is listening to, oh, my voice sounds so good, doesn't it? Everyone else must think my voice sounds great. That worship is not going to God. And the person next to them who's croaking out barely on key, who's maybe feeling a little bit sheepish, but they're lifting their heart to God because this is the voice he gave them. That worship makes it to God's throne. It's not the quality of our voices that determines the quality of our worship. And so I wonder, as those other prisoners listen to Paul and Silas, has there ever been a worship service that was so pleasing to God in the history of the world as that one from a dungeon cell? Pure worship coming from pure hearts, lifting up above their circumstances that reaches God's throne. And how that must have blessed God's heart to hear his servants in such a terrible situation, lifting up their voices as broken as they were to him in praise and in worship. I suspect that not only the prisoners were listening to their worship that day, I think the angel choirs of heaven stopped their singing. As beautiful as the celestial choirs will be, unlike anything else in all of glory, they stopped to listen to Paul and Silas. What could be more profound than those voices being lifted up above those bars, above that dungeon, above the other prisoners? They pinch themselves because they can't quite believe what they're hearing. For there were songs of praise to God above their circumstances. And so we have to stop and put ourselves there once more. What is our prison? What is our dungeon? What is our circumstances? What is yours? What is mine? Did you know that people listen to our singing as well? I'm not talking necessarily about our literal singing, though that might be true. I'm talking more about what is the song of our lives. And you see, when things are good, and and when things are, are going great in your life, And you're singing, your life is singing, people say, yeah, well, that's to be expected, they're blessed. But it's when times are hard, when you're in a dungeon, so to speak, and you're still singing, that's when people really listen. Because just like with Paul and Silas, it goes against the norm, it goes against the good, bad scale of being thankful. Only when times are good, that's when we sing, that's when we give thanks. But what about over here? What about in the dungeon? That's where our song has a powerful testimony. Because those prisoners were listening. Everyone was listening. How could you be singing from a dungeon? You see, that is where the test of our faith is truly made real. How real is our faith? Is our faith real enough to still praise God from a dungeon? Because if it is that is where it has a true and powerful testimony. This is where Paul and Silas lived out their theology of thankfulness. Because, you see, they could not have sang to God if they only believed that 
that things were in God's will and according to his plan when things were going good. They had a greater and broader view of God than that. Because primarily, their gratitude was based upon God's goodness and his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. And Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you see, Paul was in a dungeon, yes, but nothing had separated him from the love of Christ. He still felt it as near and as real, perhaps more so than he ever had before in his life in that dungeon cell. And so he had what he needed to still praise God because this dungeon had not separated him from the love of Christ, from the gift of salvation. And so my friends, let me ask you, who or what can separate you from the love of Christ? Who can take away your gift of salvation? Who can rob you of the living hope of heaven. Who can do it? Satan can't do it. And if Satan can't do it, then no one can. It is secure for you in Christ and through him. And so that means we can have the same theology of thankfulness, just like Paul had, to praise God even from the dungeon. Now just to be clear... Paul and Silas were not rejoicing about their circumstances. They were rejoicing in the Lord above their circumstances. Because you see, God doesn't expect you to rejoice about all the bad things that happen to you. He's not expecting us to go, you know, cancer, all right. Yes, I lost my job. Oh, my house just burned down. Praise the Lord. No, that's not what God's expecting from us. This isn't some sort of a masochistic doctrine that delights in suffering for its own sake. And we can look at the life of Job for a great example of this. Job suffered unlike any other man. And yet in it all, he did not sin by blaming God. Yes, he wanted answers to his questions. In his great suffering, he still cried out to the Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? But Job did not curse God. He did not blame God for what he had gone through. And so he passed the test, and that even in the end, when God didn't answer his questions the way Job had wanted, he put him in his place by saying, where were you when I created all of this? And in the end, Job said, I was a fool to speak as I did. But nonetheless, God rewarded Job's faithful endurance, and he rewarded him with much more blessing, more children at the end of his life than even at the beginning. And so we have to remember God doesn't want us to delight in suffering for its own sake, but to remember that he is above it all no matter what circumstances we go through. And like Job, we can trust him and in his goodness that in the end we will see him. In the end, everything will be made right. And so it's this perspective 
that enables us to go through everything that this life can throw our way, everything that Satan can throw our way, because we understand that our suffering, God can use even that for our ultimate good and for the good of others. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Then Romans 8, 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The year was 1818. The setting was France. Louis, a boy of nine years of age, was sitting in his father's workshop. His father was a harness maker. And the boy Louis loved nothing more than to come into his father's shop and to watch his dad work. Day after day, this was what Louis loved to do as his father worked the leather. One day, he said to his father, Someday, I want to become a harness maker just like you, father. To which his father replied, Well, son, why not start your training today? And so with that, he took a piece of leather and he drew out a simple design on it. Then he said, Now, my son, take the hole puncher and a hammer and follow this design, but be careful that you don't hit your hand as you work the chisel. So excited, the boy picked up the chisel and hammer. He began to work. But then when he hit the hole puncher at a glancing blow, not at the right angle, it somehow flew out of his hand, ricocheted off what he was working on, and flew straight back into his eye, piercing it. He lost sight of the eye immediately. Then later on, sight in the other eye also failed, and now tragically, young Louis, only nine years of age, is totally blind, and he would never become a harness maker like his father. A few years passed by, and Louis was sitting in the family garden. A friend handed him a pine cone, and as Louis ran his sensitive fingers over the pine cone, an idea came to him. And suddenly he became enthusiastic and he began to create an alphabet of raised dots on paper so that the blind could feel and interpret through touch what was written. And thus Louis Braille opened up a whole new world for the blind that is still being used to this very day. All because of what appeared to be at the time nothing more than a tragic accident. You see, we too can be thankful to God in our troubles. Because if God is real, and if God is in charge of our lives, and if Romans 8.28 is true, then we can trust that God has a plan and a purpose for everything that happens to us in this life. Even the things that make absolutely no sense to us at all, we can trust that God is still at work. That he's still at work bringing something through the darkness that we cannot yet see, but we lay hold of by faith. Even if we don't have the answer until we stand in his presence in eternity, it is true because God is real and his word cannot lie. He is working about all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is precisely what Paul and Silas did. For though they were not able to free themselves, they chose to pray and sing to the one who is able to do above all that we ask or imagine. And then look at what God did through it. 
A sudden earthquake shakes the foundation of the prison. The prisoners are freed, and yet, because again of Paul's influence, they do not escape. And so the jailer, he who was about to take his own life because of the consequences of having the prisoners escape on his watch, he stays his hand, and he asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, and he believes. And they go home, and his whole family believes, and the entire family is saved and baptized that very night. And so the story concludes that the very next day, Paul and Silas are now being pleaded with by the city officials to just leave the city, and they're even given an official escort to leave the region unharmed. This is God and what he is capable of. And the same God who did that for Paul and Silas is the same God we worship and serve today, and he is still able to to do above all that we ask or imagine even today. He can take the darkest places of our, of our lives and he can bring about something beautiful through it. Even things that may seem hopeless in the moment. Whether a family, a marriage, a relationship with a son or daughter, a broken heart, a crushed dream, a dead end, rejection, slander, being gossiped about, the loss of health, the loss of financial security, the loss of a loved one. Even when depression may seem the deepest and the word hope seems like nothing more than a cruel joke, even there God is able. Even there God is worthy of our praise. And even there we can choose to give our gratitude to him. For when we are motivated by God's goodness, by his unfailing mercies, rather than by our circumstances, then even from a dungeon cell, we can still give our thanks to God. In 1636, amid the darkness of the Thirty Year War, a German pastor named Martin Rinkhart is said to have buried 5,000 parishioners in a single year, an average of 15 a day. His parish was ravaged by war, death, and economic disaster. And in the heart of that darkness, the cries of fear outside his window every day, he sat down and wrote a table grace for his children. And it was sometime later that Johann Kruger set it to music, and it goes like this. You might recognize the words. Now thank we all our God, with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath led us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are able to do above all that we ask or even imagine by your power. We thank you that it is by your power that we too have the ability, like Paul and Silas, to praise you from a dungeon, for you are worthy. And our circumstances, no matter what they look like in the present, are not the end, for our end has already been ensured that it is to be in glory with you forever and ever. And so we praise you, not because of our circumstances, but because we know that you can work through all circumstances to bring about eternal good and glory for you and for us, your children, who have put our trust in you. And so comfort our hearts with this truth today. May it become a bedrock of our lives that we will praise you no matter what comes. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
this time we will now prepare to partake in communion, and so I would invite those